Welcome to this episode of the Environmentalism in the Hague podcast. Our podcast aims to introduce and educate listeners about all the various environmental efforts that are being made in the Hague. If this is the first time you are tuning into our podcast, you should know that all our episodes have an optional walking route associated with them. This route will take you past a number of the locations discussed in the episode and allow you to have a more tangible experience while stretching your legs. Links to the walking routes can be found in the description of each episode or alternatively on our Instagram at The Environmental Podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach out to us at thehagueenvironmentalpodcast at gmail.com. In this particular episode, we're going to deal with all the public efforts that are being made with regards to environmentalism. In other words, what is the government doing to tackle environmental issues? Which public organ fulfills which purpose and how are they doing? My name is Dave and today I'm joined by my colleagues Simon and Leah to explore all these questions and more. Yo, yo. Thanks for having us, Dave. No worries. Thanks for having me, Dave. Hey, welcome. For today's episode, we start at one of the most central places in The Hague, aptly named The Hague Central Station. In summer, you will often find birds flying around inside the station, underneath its impressive glass roof. You may not necessarily expect this location to be included into an environmental project for any other reason than as a convenient starting point, but the central station does actually bear some relevance to environmental issues and the role of the government in them. You see, the Netherlands, being the small country that it is, is highly interconnected. The entire western area of the country is made up of important towns and cities that are all quite close to another, but not quite close enough to convince even the Dutch to ride a bike between them. <laughs> this area, roughly comprised of the two provinces of North Holland and South Holland, is known as the Randstad. Every day, tens of thousands of people travel between the various cities of the Randstad, and they can really only do so in one of two ways. They can drive a car or they can use the public transport. The most environmentally sound method of public transport is the train. The Dutch have been laying rails in their country since as early as 1839. To illustrate how much rail there is in the Netherlands, consider the following. From the east to the west of the country is only a distance of about 170 kilometers. And even from the very bottom to the very top of the country is only about 300 kilometers. Yet within this area, there's over 3,200 kilometers of railway, 70% of which is fully electrified, providing minimal emissions. In the Netherlands, only one railway company has been granted the exclusive right to use most of the network, aptly named the Nederlandse Spoorwegen or NS, Dutch Railways. The NS built all the railways you see and actually owned them until as recently as 1995. After that year, a gradual and complicated process started that culminated in the ownership of the railway itself being transferred to the Ministry of Traffic and Water State. But the company, the NS, maintained the exclusive right to use them. If you leave the central station on the north side, you will find yourself on the Anna van Buren Square or Anna van Burenplein. Just across the other side of this square is where between 2021 and 2026, the Dutch parliament will temporarily be located while the historical Binnenhof is undergoing renovations. While the restoration of the Binnenhof is part preservation of the historical site and part adapting the facility to the requirements of our modern age and political process, it is also an effort to make the building more, but not completely climate neutral. The political process that occurs inside this building dictates what the government is going to do about environmentalism. 
Currently, the parties that make up the coalition are relatively in favor of things like renewable energy sources, increasing the sustainability of agriculture and addressing issues with emissions and biodiversity. However, there are opposition parties that would like to see a more radical approach, and of course, some parties that would like a less radical approach. Then there are parties that do acknowledge the problem of climate change, but advocate for alternatives to renewable energy, particularly nuclear power is becoming a more and more talked about option. Parties advocating for nuclear energy point towards the large amount of land area that renewable energy sources require, their reliance on weather circumstances, the claim that windmills cannot be fully recycled, and the relatively low cost and land area use that nuclear energy has in comparison. Of course, like in most countries, there's also at least one party that denies the existence of the climate crisis altogether. Overall though, the direction of the Dutch government is going to that the Dutch government is going to take is decided upon by elections every four years and subsequently by the efforts that the elected representatives put in inside this very building. Wow, That's Dave. It. Fascinating. Yeah. So what do you guys think about the, the whole uh, discussion, uh, especially taking into account the argument of um, limited land availability uh, for renewable energy sources versus nuclear energy? I actually took a class on this and I always was very against nuclear energy. Um, however, I, I see now that it's actually very beneficial and that many other renewable energies, such as the wind farms that you mentioned and also solar panels, they create so much waste as well and are not always the best option. Um, so I always think um, a mix of these renewable energies would be benef most beneficial. And especially since you asked the question of limited space, green roofs or putting solar panels is i think the way to go for sure i think the other significant issue with nuclear energy too is the the nuclear like byproduct of of the process to make energy and you have to store that somewhere because it doesn't go away and it's so highly toxic so when you talk about limited space in the short run that might seem like a logical argument for nuclear waste or for nuclear power but uh that space Will, will limit where you can put all of your nuclear waste. And that becomes a huge concern down the line. Yeah, that's true down the line. But right now, actually, we, are, we have one nuclear reactor in the Netherlands, in Borselen. And uh, there's space there to build a second one. And they already have, they have basically this big yellow box. Um, and that, uh, if you build another reactor, that will be enough, this big yellow box, to store all the nuclear waste we will produce for the next 100 years. Hmm. And it's about the size of like, like a couple fridges, maybe. And uh, yeah, so I don't know about the waste. No, yeah, yeah. that's quite interesting. Have you read about um, what they're going to do about the radioactiveness of the waste or? No, but it's I know that this box, it's completely sealed off and it's strong enough that a plane can crash directly into it and it, it will be unharmed. So. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've heard ideas in uh, discussions about discussions about this. For example, uh, of eventually shooting the nuclear waste into space, things like that. That would be, that that would work. It's not it's not that heavy, you know. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, you know? that would work. There'd be a lot of energy would have to go into that. But if we could figure out a, an easier, more cost effective way to do that. That's yeah, but if you have to solution. only have to do it, if if you only have to do it once every one hundred years, then that might cancel out the emissions. Yeah, yeah, the rocket absolutely. <laughs> Totally. I don't know. Well, and if it's only like a refrigerator box size thing, that's that's quite different. I'm I'm thinking at it from an American perspective. I have no idea what the situation is like in the Netherlands, but we had to like fill up a freaking mountain, like literally oh, yeah. a hollow mountain with like nuclear waste. So 
Okay, it's no, not great. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mean, I I still think it's useful to to debate these really um, revolutionary or creative new I- ideas of dealing with something like nuclear waste. And uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. We could definitely talk on for hours about this. For sure. But let's move on to the next segment. (laughs) So right around the corner from where the Dutch parliament is currently temporarily located is an important building that uh, houses two major ministries. If you didn't know, ministries are basically the executive executive branches of government that pertain to specific issues. So um, this particular building houses two important ministries with regards to environmentalism, the Ministry of Agriculture, Nature and Food Quality, and the Ministry of Economic Issues and Climate Adaptation. To make it a bit easier, I'm just going to refer to these from now on as the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Economics, uh, Ministry of Economic Issues, maybe. So besides the Ministry for Economics, there is a separate Ministry of Finance, uh, which is located elsewhere in The Hague. And basically what you see is that every nation in the European Union and the world uh, structures their ministries a little bit differently. Germany, for example, has a separate Ministry of Finance and then a Ministry of Economics and Energy, and then a separate Ministry for Climate Adaptation, Nature Conservation and things like that. France has one Ministry of Economics and Finance and a separate one for the ecological transition as a whole. The structure that exists in the Netherlands has some advantages and some disadvantages. On the one hand, the fact that every economic decision made by the Dutch government has to pass through the same executive branch of government that is also responsible for climate adaptation makes sure that climate is always a factor in every economic decision that is made, at least in theory. The disadvantage of not having a separate ministry um, is that in cases where economic decisions do not adequately take uh, the climate into account, there's no separate government body that is very strongly positioned to call them out effectively. Besides maybe some green opposition parties in parliament or maybe the the Ministry of Agriculture can say something, but in general, the Ministry of Economics and Climate Adaptation is responsible for all the large global scale things like emissions. And uh, yeah, and the parties that make up the ministries are the ruling parties, the coalition parties, and they cannot be relied upon, at least not fully, to call out faults in their own policy either. So it has strengths, but also weaknesses. So yeah, as mentioned before, uh, the Ministry of Economic Issues shares their building with the Ministry of Agriculture. And whereas the former is responsible for global scale issues, uh, the latter, the Ministry of Agriculture, Uh, is more focused on reducing the environmental impact of agriculture, reducing the amount of nitrogen, that one is very big right now, uh, because of its adverse effects on biodiversity, and also improving the habitat of wild animals is another responsibility of this uh, ministry. So the Ministry of Agriculture sees agriculture, nature, and food quality as three topics that are intimately connected. One example of a project the Ministry of Agriculture is involved in uh, is the creation of these ecological passages uh, across one of the major highways in South Holland to connect like the biotope of the, the dunes area to the polder biotope on the other side of the highway. So yeah, uh, one of the most hotly debated uh, topics that pertains to this particular ministry is the topic of nitrogen emissions. And while the Netherlands has roughly halved its nitrogen emissions since 1990, many of the larger parties, uh, parties in government still feel an urgent need to double down on cutting them even further. 
Over the past years, it has led to much con- controversy and conflict with Dutch farmers that during the last elections, uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to start again from that sentence. We'll fix it in editing. Over the past years, this has led to so much controversy and conflict with Dutch farmers that during the last elections, a new party got elected into parliament with as their main mission to protect the interests of farmers. While this new party, the BBB or Farmer Civilian Movement, um, currently only holds one seat, polls actually indicate that if there were to be elections right now, they would grow very significantly. Another point of conflict between the ministries and Dutch farmers is the reduction of the cattle stock. Cattle is well known to have a significant negative impact on the environment, particularly through their emissions of methane, but also the production of meat uh, requires a lot of water. And on top of that, a growing segment of the population has ethical issues with eating meat in the first place. For these reasons, the ministries are pushing to reduce the cattle stock across the country. And here again, they are getting into conflict with the interests of local farmers. It is worth pointing out that the cattle stock is already declining year over year and the ministries are just pushing to speed up this process. So yeah, there's a lot of conflict between uh, the interests of local farmers and uh, the interest of the current sitting government and also the broader interest of environmentalists around the globe in the Netherlands right now. And that this conflict, I think, is very pivotal in how um, policy and environmentalism in the Netherlands will progress over the next decades. The next location is right across the street from the two ministries. Um, It's called the CPB or Central Planning Bureau. It is an independent research institute that regularly provides the government and various ministries with analyses and models on all the various challenges facing the Netherlands. While climate adaptation and, and environmentalism are just a relatively small part of their work, they still play an important role in these issues. The government uses the advice provided by this institute, among other institutes, to give shape to their policies. The CPB also works with important international parties, such as the International Monetary Fund and the Organization for Economic Cooperation in Europe, in order to stimulate a global approach for the purpose of tackling global challenges, such as environmental ones. As mentioned, the CPB is not the only institute that provides the government with information. Other examples are the CBS, which is the Central Bureau of Statistics, and the PBL, which is the Planning Bureau for the Living Environment, roughly translated. Both of which, both of these other um, institutions also have their main offices in The Hague, and uh, these types of semi-independent organizations are often responsible for providing the government with the information that they use in their debates in Parliament, and they play a very important role in the development of environmental policy. The next location we're going to cover is the Malieveld. The Malieveld has a very long history. It's been here since the 16th century and the law dictates that it can never be built upon. Before it became the field it is today, it was part of the Haagse Bosch. While the field serves many functions, such as the hosting of fairs, military parades and markets, it is also the main location for the organization of political demonstrations in the Netherlands. In 2019, when the conflict between Dutch farmers and the sitting government was at one of its most heated points, thousands of tractors from all over the country assembled on the field. 
Roads were jammed for miles around, and the noise could be heard, heard throughout the city. At other times, there have been environmental demonstrations by organizations like Greenpeace. Anyone who wishes to use activism in order to support a given view on environmental topics should keep this place in mind. Greenpeace is, of course, a relatively moderate example of activism compared to some of the newer organizations that have sprung up over the past decade. Dutch groups like Groenfront and international groups like Extinction Rebellion propagate a much more radical approach to climate activism. Whatever the intensity of your personal disposition towards environmental issues is, though, if you believe in the power of activism, you will likely be able to find an organization that you can level with. And if you attend their demonstrations, you will likely find yourself here at some point on the Maliveld. If you would like to learn more about what activism and other non-governmental organizations are able to achieve, check out our episode on that. The final location included in this podcast episode is the Town Hall of The Hague. The Town Hall is where all the local decisions are made. Many of the various projects that we cover in other episodes have at some point had to deal with someone from the municipality of The Hague. The Town Hall is the center of operations for the municipality. The Netherlands is quite a decentralized country, meaning that the local municipalities have quite a lot to say when it comes to policy, the approval of building projects, and the management of space in general. Every park, green space, community farm, and every single one of the gardens and spaces you find throughout The Hague are ultimately managed through policy developed and decided upon here in the town hall. If you would like to learn more about these locations, such as the farms and green spaces, check out our episode on biodiversity. This concludes this episode of the Environmental The Hague podcast. Be sure to check out our other episodes if you would like to learn more and don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions.